I'm Kara Infante, and this is Bookish Flights. In each episode, I chat with one bookish guest as we take some time to sample and savor the pairing recommendations from their bookish flight. We hope to give you suggestions to cultivate your TBR list and nurture your leisure time through books. In today's episode, I am chatting with Dr. Kim Davis. Dr. Davis joins us from beautiful Pearl Harbor today. Kim is a Naval officer and board certified ophthalmologist. This spring, she was recognized as the American Hospital Association Federal Healthcare Executive of the Year. Over a 31 year career, she has served in various positions and locations across the globe, supporting pandemic response, warfighter readiness, humanitarian assistance, and partner nation preparedness. Her proudest contributions have been reversing blindness abroad and encouraging diverse young people to enter STEM fields. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you very much, Kara. I really appreciate the opportunity to join your podcast. Uh, Before we get started, I just um, need to make a quick disclaimer that any comments that I make today are mine alone and do not represent the views of the United States government. Well, thank you for that. And I am so honored to have you on the show today. So thank you. Why don't you tell us, we ha- you have a very impressive bio here, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I am, um, I, you know, as you said, I'm in the Navy um, and I have been a per- career professional doing both um, medicine and healthcare administration. I'm an educator. I'm also a, a mom and a wife and, um, and a reader. That's wonderful. And I imagine over the course of your career that you have worn many hats, it sounds like as well. Definitely. Um, You know, and I, as I was kind of reflecting a little bit on reading, I, I have to tell you that so much of the time associated with books initially was hardcore science books, right? Very dense material that, you know, we had to memorize and, um, some of it wasn't very fun. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I remember being in grad school and I could not allow myself to read a leisure book because I knew that that would be what I would be drawn towards instead of the like scientific, you know, the dry textbook. I was like, nope, if I even pick up a leisure book, I'm going to get hooked in that story. And that's all I'm going to want to read. So I would like ban myself from leisure reading for the entire semester until we would get to Christmas break or whatever it would be. And I'm like, okay, I can pick up a leisure book for three weeks. So how much can I get in? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And then, so you're in beautiful Honolulu now. Yes, we sure are. We're, you know, it's, uh, it's wonderful. They say, um, you know, home is where the Navy sends you. And we have really, really had an amazing career. This is our second time to be here. And we've gotten to be in really wonderful places like Puerto Rico and Annapolis and San Diego. And um, it's amazing to be here in Pearl Harbor, where we're surrounded by so much of our nation's history. Yeah. Yeah, it's a magical place for sure. That was our first uh, duty station that we landed on. And I felt incredibly lucky (laughs) to be like, how did everybody's like, how did you get Honolulu for your first place to go? And it was just luck of the draw, really. I mean, we, Eric, my husband didn't really know what he was doing. It just fell in our lap that it was available and timing worked out. Um, 
but yeah, we've been very fortunate. I feel like with sunny locations, we did one year in Bremerton. Oh gosh, is it two years ago now? And it felt like a shock because I'm like, for almost 10 years, we've been living in sunny, remotely mild <laughs> weather places. And I'm like, oh, Bremerton is really rough. <laughs> yes, but at least you have water. You know, almost everywhere the Navy can send you, you have beautiful water. So yes. great views. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people when they say, oh, at least you have good duty stations with the Navy. And I'm like, I mean, I guess I've never thought about it in the grand scheme, but yes, it has worked out very well. So, um, and then, so I, with your job, I imagine that you are incredibly busy. So how do you find time to fit in reading into your life? So, you know, I would say that's varied over uh, the course of my adult life. Um, I remember it's probably a decade ago now, but a very busy time. And I, I happened to be in our hospital library and I saw that they had books on CD. If you can remember that, right. Like you (laughs) these things up and, you know, I thought, oh my goodness, I could get some books on CD. And I really started that with some leadership books. And then I started, you know, picking up some books um, that were just fun reads. And that was the first time that I did any, um, audiobooks. And it was fascinating to me with the um, basically um, actors that you would have on there. Sometimes they even had sound effects and things like that. I remember Water for Elephants and several Janet Ivanovich books that were just just hugely fun. So I really, I really think that's the point in my life where I started reading, you know, or enjoying books again for leisure. And since then, I've not wanted to stop, you know, I, I, I prefer to read books, you know, paper books. And um, I, you know, I always read before bed. Um, I like to read on weekends. That is just one of my biggest guilty pleasures is just time alone with the dog by my side and birds chirping and, um, you know, just diving into another period in time or, you know, peeling back a curtain to some, you know, a fascinating life or adventure or something like that. Yeah. It sounds like it really fills your cup, which I imagine in your busyness, you need to find ways to do that as well. Absolutely. Is your husband a reader? He is. He okay. tends to read um, more, I would say, um, history, you know, less fiction than I do. Um, if I get get a book that I think he'll like, I try to kind of stick it over on his nightstand and, <laughs> and see if he'll bite. But uh, but yes, most mostly his reads are historic, in particular on World War II. Okay, yeah. I was just wondering, because you're like, oh, it's my guilty pleasure on the weekend. So I'm like, does he understand the draw <laughs> of books? But if he's a reader as well, then he absolutely does. Yes. So, and then you've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but what type of genres do you enjoy when you read? So really several different types of books um, that I, that I enjoy. My, my husband jokes that my nightstand is a hazard zone because (laughs) at any one time there are no less than probably three or four. I, I love uh, reading leadership books and um, I love hearing other people's stories and so I always have one of those on, on my nightstand. And um, then I typically also will have some type of book that deals with um, uh, history and 
Um, it can be historic fiction or, or you know, um, actual, uh, an actual um, account, a true account, okay. and then some type of usually fun, you know, sometimes I call them throwaways, but, you know, just something, something fun and lighthearted, you know, that might be more, um, you know, that you read on someone's book club list or, you know, something, something like that. And even those I find, you know, great value in and partially because it then creates a, a discussion around a topic that you can, you know, sort of share with peers and some of those become movies and things like that. Yeah, it's almost like the pop culture of books, pop right? Pop culture, yeah. That's a good way to describe it. And I always think of those like lighthearted reads as a palate cleanser too. Like between the personal development or the leaderships or maybe the heavier books you might be reading, it's a nice little like, okay, give me something quick that I can get through and feel like I get through the story and then I'm yes. ready for another like deeper dive or a heavier read. But you, you got to have a variety. And so... Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) You definitely do. You know, sometimes it does, it starts to wear on you what you're, what you're reading about. And so again, some type of, some type of escape um, that's funny or, you know, not so serious is, is really delightful. Yeah. I've recently been exploring the idea of almost like a book, a book hangover where I've read such Mm a good book that it's it's like it's taking up so much space and rent in my head that I like cannot get it out. So I cannot move on to something else because I'm like, well, nothing else is just ever going to be as good, (laughs) which is totally not true. But I'm like, it's kind of like a book hangover. Like you just can't get it out, (laughs) get it out of there. But I've been thinking maybe putting in these kind of, you know, lighthearted fun reads in between when I feel like that, that would probably be a good way to break that cycle a little bit. You, we, we all need it. I remember reading Cutting for Stone years ago, and it's a tremendous book, but yeah. you talk about a powerful story that sticks with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you read his new one yet? No, not yet. I okay. have it in my, my cart. Uh, yeah. Okay. I have, I, it's I have very lengthy, cart. I think. It is. Yeah. So I was like, but I have That's not- kept me from buying it and carrying it on an airplane. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think it's like 800 pages or something, but a- after reading cutting for stone, I'm like, I would totally try another one of his. That was such a wonderful book. Absolutely. So, okay. Well, and you have been so gracious to prepare a book flight for us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how the books pair together? Absolutely. So, um, you know, it was really interesting as I as I heard about your, this project that you have with the pairing of books, I had never, I never really thought about that before, right? Like, is there a certain genre or um, are there, are there books that kind of fill that niche that um, is really important to me as a person? And the books that I selected for, um, for this flight all have to do with the contributions of women during World War II. Um, Many of these very young women um, were not even able to talk about the work that they did. And the contributions were exceptionally noteworthy. Um, And I loved the way our, you know, for at least two of these that our leaders realized that we needed to kind of harness the talent of everyone, right? So this is the diversity piece. And that we're, we're better with everyone. And um, yes, it was, I actually had probably half a dozen. I had to kind of start cutting them back Yeah, because <laughs> a lot of books that are on the same topic. So I picked a few of my favorites. 
Yeah, I find that my I had Eric interview me for an episode like early on when I was still trying to like have regular guests and have regular episodes. So I was like, well, could you interview me? And I think it would be fun to switch roles too, just to understand what my guests go through. And I had two books right away that paired together, but then it was like, it was so hard to figure out which would be the third book to pair in that. Cause I'm like, well, there's like five options. It could be, um, but it was a fun way to put myself in the hot seat as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So what is the first book of the pairing today? Um, so the first book is Girls of the Atomic City by Denise Kernan. Uh, and I'll tell you, this one caught my eye as I was traveling through the Memphis airport. I tend to like to explore the book uh, kiosks and, uh, you know, kind of flip through and see see what they have featured. And the reason this was interesting to me is that um, the Atomic City or Oak Ridge, Tennessee, um, you know, took place during World War II. And it was not that far from this area that I've traveled several times. Uh, basically, the government purchased about 60,000 acres and they um, set up a city complete with obviously work buildings, but also homes, restaurants, um, movie theaters, grocery stores, et cetera, and advertised through basically throughout the country that we need your help um, to bring a speedy and victorious end to the war. Okay. And so young women came really from from all over and um, they were basically told, you know, um, uh, don't ask why, you know, this is this is your job. Don't ask why. And they they had all different skill sets. So you had, you know, women that were secretaries, you had scientists, you had epidemiologists, you had nurses and they worked in separate facilities, um, um, basically making components for the um, uh, for the atomic bombs. And okay. so it was it was just fascinating how they how they came together at, you know, at this time. Um, and I've thought since then, you know, gosh, in the age of technology with you know, the ability to, you know, text and post things instantly, like this, this would, this would never have worked, right? I mean, yeah. even there, there were like spies, and you had to be very careful with, you know, people, I would say, sort of guarding the passage of information is what I would say. So that, you know, you kind of felt like you were always being, being watched. Um, you know, folks weren't able to tell families away what they, what they did. And, um, it was. Um, it really wasn't until the um, the bombs had been been dropped that ended the World War II. It ended World War II, and about two hundred thousand people, you know, had had perished in that. Um, that these that these folks understood the contributions they made, and it was fascinating to me as well. The just sort of the mix of emotion, right? That that the that folks had when they realized what they contributed to. You know, they yeah. I think many of them felt that, you know, they things could have been a lot worse had they not um been part of that. But at the same time, that was then something that yeah. many of them carried um, you know, basically, you know, for the, you know, for the rest of their, you know, rest of their adult lives and not able to talk to many other people about it. 
Yeah, I have the chills as you're telling that about just the emotions that would be behind that, right? Of the, yes, we're saving, you know, stopping the war, but then the loss of life on the back end, right? That dichotomy of if you look at both sides of that. Absolutely. And were they able to like, were they able to come and go because it was so secretive or did they have to stay? Yeah, that, you know, that's a really great question. Um, it's, you know, my understanding from the book that they were pretty much, um, that was where they lived now, kind of yeah. a thing, right? And so they were able to write letters, but um, the the folks who received their letters basically said, um, don't bother because everything you write is blacked out. Yeah. Right. And so all of their mail was censored. And there was even a section in there where they talked about, you know, folks needing medical care. And essentially they the care that they got was what was available there in Oak Ridge. And they really weren't able to go off because they were afraid that um, the secrets would be revealed. And again, each each of these women knew only what they were working on. Right. But they were concerned that if that if they talk to somebody, you know, from the shop next door or out in town, that people would would start to put things together. You know, as it was, there were trains that would go in um, into this city full and nothing ever came out. Right. So it was that other thing, too, about they're making something, (laughs) but we just we just don't know what it is. So a big veil of secrecy. Yeah. Wow. And I feel like when you read these books in World War II, I feel like they pl- everything is like playing on like the patriotism of people, right? Like you're doing this for the victory, right? Like you're minimal information, but it's for the victory of our country, right? And they're just playing into that and that's the motivation they're using. Um, and so that's very interesting. And I, I just can't even imagine, I'm like trying to put myself in their shoes and that's why I love reading is for that exact reason is to put myself in someone else's shoes in a life that I will never experience because I didn't live in the 1940s. But um, to think, would I respond the same way if I was faced with the situations or what would I be feeling? You know, absolutely. Seeing these trains come in, I don't really know what's going on. I can't talk to the people next to me. And I'm like living in a bubble of my, you know, shop. And that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that made this book um, feel a lot more personal as well is that the author did extensive research and then followed some of the key characters. So I remember um, Celia, one of the young girls, um, she basically said, you know, none of the girls would complain about secrecy. Complaining was not in fashion in 1943, not with so many sacrifices being made. Um, thousands of miles away, so much loss of life and family, right? Like, how could anyone with a good job complain? Yeah. And and I agree. It was just um, a unique time. Wow. Wow. That sounds wonderful. And this was one of the nonfiction books, correct? It it is. Okay. Yes, it absolutely was. So um, yeah, a great read um, that I would highly recommend. Wonderful. Okay. So that was Girls of the Atomic City by Denise Kiernan. And then what's the second book of the pairing? So the second girls, um, the the second book, excuse me, is uh, entitled Code Girls, and it's by Lisa Mundy. And this book was likewise absolutely fascinating. And um, essentially, you know, with the majority of our nation's men um, called to don the uniform during World War II, Um, recruiters began to recognize there was a need for female talent. 
And so, you know, their, their mantra was kind of come at once, we could use you in Washington, D.C. So the Navy started to look at Ivy League colleges and they, they started with professors that were at these universities and, and asked, you know, who are your best students in math and science, music and language? And then once those young women were identified, um, they simply were asked two questions. And I, I got a kick out of this. So the first one was, uh, do you like crossword puzzles? And the second was, are you engaged to be married? <laughs> <laughs> And so, um, again, a different time, right? Yeah. So the students, um, you know, who uh, uh, responded appropriately to those questions were kind of put in round two. Um, and then they were tested. Um, and then if they passed high enough, they were invited um, essentially to train with the sharpest minds um, in code breaking. And um, those those things were in Washington, D.C. And in order to support this code breaking mission, the they had to basically claim certain buildings. Arlington Hall, for example, had been a two year finishing school for girls, and that ended up being the main headquarters of the the army uh, detachment there. And the army was interesting as well because unlike the um, Northeast that the Navy recruited from, they actually recruited um, math and science teachers from the Midwest. And um, so that I thought was pretty cool. And in in total, there were about 10,000 women um, wow. sworn to secrecy. And essentially, for the most part, their families thought, you know, they were there um, working as simple um, secretaries, you know, they downplay their roles and say, I sharpen pencils and do typing and their families were none the wiser. Yeah. Which again, if you think about like, you could never do that in 2023 today. Like people would be like, no, you're like putting down the woman, right? Like you can't just be sharpening pencils, right? I mean, that would be that you couldn't use that as a shield, I think, in today's age. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, similar to the women, you know, that we spoke about in um, Girls of the Atomic um, City in Oak Ridge, you know, these code breakers, they couldn't speak of anything that they did in their section even, right? Um, and so it was, it was really fascinating. I learned, I learned a lot about um, uh, code breaking in this book and sort of understanding a little bit of secret message systems you know, that exist. And, um, you know, some of that was pretty interesting, like codes, for example, they um, replace words and phrases with a collection of numbers or letters, whereas you had um, ciphers, and that was like a one on one substitution for like oh, a letter or okay. a number. So it was it was pretty interesting to see which sections the women would be in. And you definitely could see how that love for puzzle solving would would come in handy. That is really cool. I love books that you're learning. Right. And this is why I love historical fiction, because I I'm learning at least I'm learning about the time period. But it sounds like you're learning all this about the codes and the ciphers as well, which is really neat. Yes, absolutely. Well, and the ciphers, too, it was pretty cool. They actually. Um, ended up recreating some of these. So the purple cipher um, machine, um, they actually called that um, magic. And that was 
um, for the Pacific. And then they also had these Enigma systems, which were uh, to break codes for um, the U-boats, um, wow. the German U-boats. So they all stayed locally, though, here, and or not locally, but in the United States. They weren't like sent off. The book, the women in this particular book, yes, but okay. I, there may have been women doing things, you know, in in U.S. women in other parts of the world as well. Okay, yeah, because I know I've read one. Um, I believe it's the Rose Code. Have you read that one? I have not. Okay, it's by Kate Quinn. She's actually a Navy spouse, which I learned. Oh, really? Um, but that. she, it's I believe that they it was out of the U.K. It was women mm-hmm. out of the U.K. But they were sent like into. Uh, France to send coded messages like locally to destroy bridges or to stop the Nazi Mm. movement through France. So they were also like taught code and all of that, but they were sent to the, you know, front lines there. So it's, it is a very good, good read if you're looking for another one (laughs) around coding. That's good. I I need more. (laughs) And I didn't learn as much, I think, about like coding and ciphers, but it's a, it's historical fiction. It definitely was a very moving story. So. That's fantastic. Okay. Sorry. I totally digress. Do you have anything else you'd like to add about Code Girls? Well, it, um, you know, the interesting thing was that these women, at the conclusion of the war, um, they kept all of this secret, all of this work that they did. So unlike, you know, in the Girls of the Atomic City, when it was finally announced, you know, what they had been a part of, right? It was a little bit, you know, more known of Oak Ridge's participation. These women, um, some of them did stay, you know, they were, many of them were part of the waves, right? Like for the Navy. Um, Others went into kind of related fields, but some, you know, maybe stopped working and, you know, or went into totally different fields. And so, um, you know, I would just encourage any of your listeners to, you know, maybe look into this a little, you know, a little more because there are some fascinating videos that they were able to tape at the end of some of these women's lives, right? 70 years later, um, when this was finally, you know, declassified, and even after it was declassified, um, the women, you know, many of them held on to this and, and, you know, felt they were, it was some type of a betrayal um, to do it. And, you know, I just loved the, the author called these code girls, the hidden figures of the greatest generation. Yeah. Yeah. And it, could you imagine having that whole secret life? Yeah. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I'm not very good at keeping secrets. I don't know that I'd be very good at that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wow. Okay. I'm definitely adding this to my TBR as well as to go look at some <laughs> of these videos with the women. Cause that would be cool to see their, their actual tape their footage. That is something that impresses me so much with historical fiction as well. I've had some authors of historical fiction on the show and how they, how much time, I mean, they spend almost three years doing just research and then how to synthesize this into a novel that we can digest and enjoy. I find that so impressive that what these authors can do. Absolutely. Me too. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that was Code Girls by Liza Mundy. And then what is the last book of the pairing today? So the last book is um, called The Invisible Woman, and it's by Erica Roebuck. 
And um, I picked this one. This is a historic fiction. So it's the it's the first historic fiction of the group. Um, and um, one thing that I thought was was really pretty cool. This book was a selection from a book club I participate remotely in in okay. Annapolis, Maryland. Um, at, since our time of being stationed um, there. And okay. the author is actually from Annapolis. Okay. And um, this was the first time that I knew that authors would sometimes participate in book clubs, which I thought was just so cool. So, so she actually came to the book club and, um, and, you know, interacted um, with the readers. Um, I was remote at the time and, um, you know, it was just so neat to be able to connect through video to see it as well, which was, was super great. Um, so this book is um, a, an account of Virginia Hall. And she was essentially a hero who wanted to remain behind the scenes and out of the spotlight. Um, and it turns out she was actually the most highly decorated female civilian of World War II. Wow. Wow. Chills again. Wow. <laughs> I know. Exactly. So she, she was born um, into a family of privilege. Um, and she had to find her own way to service. She really wanted to serve. Um, she she had applied and tried, you know, tried to work for the government, and she was initially um, turned down. And finally, she got hired as a as a clerk for the U.S. consulate office in Turkey. Um, and then, when World War II broke out, she started driving ambulances. Um, over there. And, you know, just again, kind of like you, you and I talked about earlier, right? Like, how can I help? Um, it uh, When she was in Turkey, um, very early on, she was involved in a hunting accident where she actually um, shot her foot and ended up with um, a, um, a gangrenous um, toe and limb and actually ended up, you'll be interested as a physical therapist, she was actually ended up with an amputation. Wow. And, and in those days, of course, they don't have the incredible prostheses that our, you know, warfighters and others have today. Um, so that was one of her, one of her things is that she had this limp. Um, she actually, um, you know, even named her prosthesis and all these things. So she was very distinguishable from that. Um, um, okay. She, um, anyway, so she, because of that injury, they then said that she was ineligible to be a diplomat at the State Department, even though that was something that she really aspired to. Um, so it was, um, it ended up being this really chance meeting that somebody kind of recognized her brilliance and recruited her as a spy. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I'm impressed that they would be like, okay, you could be the spy with the limp because you would think that that would be a right? giveaway, right? Yes. Uh well, and that, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was something that I, this really speaks to this woman's commitment as well. So she, um, she decided to um, disguise or her team decided to have her disguise as an older woman. And so she actually um, um, used that gate, she created it into like a older person's like kind of hobble is how she disguised it. She became very facile in, um, you know, uh, makeup and created wrinkles. She dyed her hair and even went as far as um, filing her teeth. 
Can you imagine (sighs) this young woman born to privilege files her teeth to make her look more like a peasant? Wow. Yes. So she, she was advertised widely her face as being, um, you know, the, um, basically, you know, sort of like most wanted okay. across, across France, but they couldn't, nobody could find her Yeah, <laughs> because she was hidden in plain sight. Wow. And like you said, just that level of commitment, that's all that's going through my head is her commitment to her job. And absolutely. That's really wonderful. So does it, it goes through some of the, like, I'm assuming, do they call it missions in the book? I'm, I'm looking for the right term, but. Yes, absolutely. So a lot of what she did too was behind the scenes. Um, you know, it was interesting. The author, like you said, did extensive research and there wasn't a lot. Many of her family members didn't even know much about her. And so part of the historic fiction, the the author created some relationships and other things so that you could understand a little bit more about her kind of stoic personality. Um, And much of what they described her helping with was um, getting um, much needed supplies to the French resistance and, you know, putting putting herself in jeopardy um, and. yeah, it was it was amazing. It reminded me a little bit of some other books that I'm sure you and and your listeners, you know, enjoyed, like the Nightingale, yeah. you know, the Alice Network, you know, some of those other things. But um, yeah, so it does take you take you through, you know, again, some of these adventures that she had and what what she was willing to to risk. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like a great book and an impressive lady for sure. Okay, so that was The Invisible Woman by Erica Roebuck. So I've been sitting here thinking as you've been talking a little bit about a dessert pairing for you as a thank you for coming on the show. And I actually just finished this week. It's called The Little Wartime Library. Have you read this? I have not. Okay, so it's, I I was going through my mind. I'm like, I don't know if I've read, I've read a lot of World War II historical fiction, but I don't, I couldn't think of anything off the top of my head based in the U.S. So, but this features women in, in London. And what happened is they were children's librarians when the war started and the library that they were working at, it had a beautiful a glass ceiling in it. It gets bombed. And so they start taking like, it wasn't recommended by the government there, but they start taking all these books down to the tube stations, right? Because this was where everybody was going at night, right? To avoid the air raids and the blitz and everything that was going on. People were like living in these tube stations. So they decided to really make social life down in these tube stations. And because they were children's librarians, they really wanted to focus on especially they call they're called the two brats in the book but the children that are living down in there and just to give them a childhood and so that be kind of came their mission they took all of these books that weren't blasted from the bomb brought them down to the tube station they built this like it, it the way they talk about it's a true story but this like flimsy library with like plywood to create this downstairs and they had children's story hour every single night because again they're trying to make this normal for children right and as normal as you can be when you're living in a tube station overnight um but really the government the british government starts to get behind this project and 
So they really started to recognize what books and novels could do for people in these times of tragedy, right? And this trauma and everything that's occurring around them, what it, how it could take people out of their circumstances, right? And it could give them a different reality. So it talks about these two, there's two main characters essentially, um, but and it goes through their story and they are, one is the head librarian, she becomes the head librarian. Cause like you said, now all the men are off to war. So she becomes a head librarian and it's like under the, the circumstance of like, well, when the men come back, I'm just going to go back to being the children's librarian, right? Um, but she finds that she just falls in love with this and she does such a good job with it that she, you know, read the story and you'll kind of find out what happens. Um, but there was this quote that I absolutely loved in here. And so it's books in wartime can be a refuge into which we make our way to escape the slings and arrows of outrageous conflict. Books can be a storehouse from which to draw sure knowledge and rich emotion to clarify our minds and strengthen our souls for the tasks to which we have set our hand. And I just love that. I was like, oh, I got to add that to my quote book. Um, That's beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I love love the dessert pairing. Yes, that's beautiful. It's a book about books. And so I think as readers, like we can totally appreciate that, but it's historical fiction, it's female main characters and they're strong women and they are fighting for these children and what they're providing for these people. Cause they're getting a lot of flack from the admin people at first before they recognize what a beautiful thing it is they have created. And it's based off a true story. She has interviewed a lot of women that lived in this. I think it was more of like a working class neighborhood of London. So it was a um, maybe more blue collar neighborhood. And so they these people didn't have much, but they realized what books brought to these people. And it just is a really beautiful story. It is. It's a thicker book, but it's worth the read. <laughs> and it's a quick one. It's um, almost 450 pages in paperback, but it was a lovely read. So <laughs> Wonderful. I'd highly recommend that. So that was The Little Wartime Library, and that's by Kate Thompson. Okay, so the last thing I like to do on the show is end with what I call our bonus pairings, which are just a speed round of questions, so you can answer these really quick. So where is your favorite place to read? My favorite place to read is uh, right now on my back porch. Uh, that, it, you know, it's a comfortable spot, especially as you know, in Hawaii, it's comfortable outside um, from a temperature standpoint. There's a breeze, but not too much breeze to crinkle pages and things like that. And you hear birds, you, um, the air smells beautiful with the yes. flowers and everything like that. We've got a nice cover um, and uh, it's, it's fun to have my golden doodle by my side as well. So I, you know, again, get to cuddle with him and, and, you know, really just um, it's grounding. Yeah. Yeah. I remember thinking that I always thought where I grew up in Chicago and I was like, oh, blue skies. Right. And I'm like, wow, I've never seen a blue sky until I lived in Hawaii. Like it was <laughs> totally different. Yeah. Yes. And if it does rain, it doesn't last long. And it's usually sunny when it is raining. And so there's gorgeous rainbow. Yeah. Yes. I was walking home from work the other day. There was a whole arc rainbow over my building. So Just cool. Like, where did, yeah. Where does that happen here? Yeah. Liquid sunshine. <laughs> it is. That's what we call it. Yep. Absolutely. 
Yes, lovely. That sounds like you've just transported me. I need to go back. <laughs> okay. And then what is one book you have read that has changed your life? Oh, goodness. I will, you know, with that, I'm, I'm going to pick a leadership book if that's okay. okay. Please do. Um, so a, a leadership book that I've really enjoyed is called The 360 Degree Leader. Okay. And at a couple of the various duty stations that I've had, that is one of the first books that I that I recommend that people um, read. And what I like so much about it is that it is... Um, it, you know, it has the reader start with sort of a kind of a self-assessment, right? Okay. And so um, you, you first have to understand yourself and then um, you, you need to get good at leading across, meaning connecting, you know, connecting with your peers. Um, you need to lead up and inform your boss and, um, and, you know, make sure that you are, fulfilling, you know, what they need from you, right? Kind of that, that dynamic, um, uh, you know, interaction. And then the last part of, of it is the leading down part, which I think okay. as leaders sometimes, you know, that's, I think sometimes how people envision a leader, right? Somebody telling people what to do. And that's, it's really the kind of the opposite, right? It, sh it should be structured in a very different way. So we've had some great um, leadership discussions with that. Um, the, the book is by John Maxwell, by the way. Okay. So that one, you know, again, I really, it was one of the first leadership books that I read and it, um, I think really um, set a foundation for how I approach leadership. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. I've definitely heard of John Maxwell. I've read a few of his, but I have not read that one, but that sounds like it'd be really wonderful. Yeah. The, the subtitle is de developing your influence from anywhere in the organization. I think that's the other thing too. You don't need a title to be a leader. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's right. As a natural leader, right. You kind of shine anyways, without trying. Absolutely. You probably know more about that than me. <laughs> I'm the leader of my family. <laughs> Okay. And then do you prefer audio or hard copy books? So I love a hard copy book and, and I will tell you, I also love a, um, a hard cover if I can, you know, uh, paperback is, is okay, especially, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm traveling, but I really like a hard cover and I think they're called deckled pages. Those, wonderful old looking irregular pages oh yeah with the edge it, right the like the edges texture is so great and um one of my daughters actually crocheted me just a beautiful bookmark that it looks like a stem and a leaf and i i like to kind of track my progress you know through the the book yeah um, so there's something about paper. I will say that the technology has gotten a lot better. You know, I've seen recently how you can change the yellow in the pages, the font, the contrast. Um, but it wasn't always like that. You know, it seems some of the, the some of the books were, um, you know, the um, digital books or e-readers were were not were not that hot. Um, and um, like I like I shared earlier, so, sometimes. 
um, you know, it is uh, sometimes it's fun to listen. It almost reminds me like of a movie, though, yeah. a movie book. Right. But if if you know, and I think I heard you talk before about doing housework and listening to, you know, audiobooks or podcasts or things like that. And if you're it's a good way to multitask. Um, um, yeah. But but if I really want to sit down and enjoy something and only focus on that, it's a it's a hardcover it's a hardcover book with a, a little a little bit of texture. Love it. I have one follow up question because just last night I'm reading a hard copy book, and the dust jacket kept like sliding off the book. Do you read with the dust jacket off or do you keep it on? Like how do you read? <laughs> <laughs> So I, I read with it on, Okay. Um, I, you know, it's funny because, you know, I, I know some people don't want them to get bent or messed up, but I always feel like the cover of a book is kind of vulnerable if it's that kind of canvassy stuff that I think could get greasy or whatever. Sure. So, so I read with the cover on. And um, if I, if I don't have that fancy, you know, embroidered bookmark or something else, I'll even as I'm starting the book, use the, the book cover to kind of mark my page. Yeah. Okay. The, the other, the other thing I'll share is I, I tend to buy a lot of used books. Okay. And um, many of the used books, especially since I'm looking for hardcover tend to be library, old library books. And so, as you know, like an old library book, it'll actually have the the paper cover, but then plastic, plastic around yeah. it and it's taped down. So even if you wanted to take the cover off, you'd be, you'd be fighting against it. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what I need to do is tape the dust jacket <laughs> on this book because I ended up taking it off. I like put it nicely in my nightstand drawer because I was like, well, when I finish the book, I'll just put it back on yes. and then it'll look all nice again. But like I was laying in bed too. So it was like, I think I was like half falling asleep, but it kept slipping and <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm done with the dust jacket. But I think it just goes to show how much I don't read. Unless, like you said, it's a library book. I don't read. I read paperback, but just not a ton of hardcover, you know, hardcover. And I was like, this is driving me nuts tonight. (laughs) So, okay. And then last question, what are you reading next? Oh, goodness. What am I reading? So I will tell you what I'm reading currently. Okay. Um, I have... um, I'm going to actually have to go look at my nightstand. One of them is The Lost Kingdom, and that is a book. It's um, Hawaii's Last Queen, The Sugar Kings, and America's First Imperial Adventure. Okay. And that one is by Julia um, Flynn Siller. Okay. And um, the... um, the other books I've got on my nightstand, one that was really good, The Founder and the Force Multiplier, um, which really talks about um, uh, how important our executive assistants, chiefs of staff, et cetera, are yeah. in the success of a leader. Okay. And then the other book that, I, that I'm partway through now is Robert E. Lee and Me, which um, you may you may have read, but essentially talks about um, you know our country's history and you know the way the way people can um, have a different perspective of you know different um, different periods in our history. Yeah. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And exactly like you said, you've got like a leadership, you've got a history, yes. <laughs> and then you've got guess, a lighter read. I guess. <laughs> I guess I do. That's that's right. I need something lighter though. So I was I was shopping around today. So yeah, that's what I love about with moving with the military is I try to read books that are set locally to where we are living because I 
I feel like that almost, like you kind of said, ground. it almost grounds me in the place a little bit where I don't know if you feel this because you're the active duty member, but sometimes I think it's a little bit easier because you guys kind of walk into your job and you have a group of people around you. And so for me, it takes a, a little bit longer. It's not a knock. It just takes a little bit longer to create a community and find where where my people are going to be. Right? Um, and, but I use books a lot when we first move, because it makes me feel like I'm learning and I'm doing something to kind of invest myself into the place why I'm working on creating that social network when we first move. Absolutely. So another reason to love books and reading. <laughs> there are so many. Yes. Well, thank you so much co- for coming on the show today. I know your time is precious. So I appreciate all that you have given me today. Absolutely. And uh, mahalo to you. And thank you. Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's really incredible. I, I was excited to hear about your, um, this area of interest and really this forum that you've created to have people gather around a love of, uh, love of reading and really a love of learning. So thank you so much and continued success to you and your beautiful family. Oh, thank you so much for those kind words. I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode today with Kim Davis and her book flight of books on victory in World War II, The Power of Diversity and Ingenuity. We'd love to know what other books you'd pair with this book flight at bookishflights.com. That is also where you can find more information on today's flight and any other books that we talked about today. I want to inspire a community of readers. So whenever you share a post about what you are reading or what you are picking up next, especially if you have heard about the book on the show, please tag us. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Bookish Flights. This is a brand new show. So if you enjoyed it, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a review. Your review not only helps me, but it also helps the show reach others. Make sure you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to make sure that you will not miss an episode. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. As Emma Thompson said, I think books are like people in the sense that they'll turn up in your life when you most need them. Cheers to you, dear readers. Until next time.